0: You're listening to Outlaws and Gunslingers, the only podcast covering all of America's infamous criminals, from the Wild West to the Mafia, all the way up to the ruthless street gangs of today. Brought to you exclusively by the Creative Control Network. Here are your hosts, the Mouthy
1: Michiganders, Bang and Dang. Welcome to Outlaws and Gunslingers, and we are back for another two-part episode. Yes, that's right. Two-part episode here again. We had to take a, uh, last week, a little 30 minute or to take a break from the big long hour, one-plus-hour one, one plus hour ones we've been doing. DB Cooper was part two, two parts. We got uh, this one, like we told you last week, all about the bombing of Flight 629. Mm-hmm. We also got... Uh, one about the hell's angels coming up yes that's right hell's angels Ooh. you knew we'd be covering them at some point and that's probably gonna be a two-parter as well maybe
0: a three-parter
1: um lots of yeah lots of stuff at the hell's angel one for show but for now another uh airplane themed episode and i'm guessing more incompetence another by airplane- the fb isles fb isles we'll see i don't know i know that this is uh one crazy ass case though uh united airlines flight 629 bombing and this dude that did it's an asshole just put it that way at 6 52 p.m on november 1st 1955 united airlines flight 629 a dc 6b with 44 people on board took off from stapleton airport in denver oh, bound for portland oregon what's up with this little area over there I know. 11 minutes later, the 39 passengers, including an infant and five crew members, were dead. Oh, no. Killed instantly when the luxurious airliner crushed on a sugar beet farm near Longmont, Colorado. Oh, no. it took 39 nine minutes from Denver to Longmont? Wait. 11 minutes, my bad. 39 people, including an infant. Plus five people. Wow! Upon learning of the disaster, an official of the FBI immediately offered the services of the Bureau's, the Buru's Identification (laughs) Division, in identifying the victims of the tragedy. Ooh, tragedy. Fingerprints experts were dispatched from Washington, D.C. by plane, arriving at the scene of the crash on November 2nd.
0: Isn't it ironic?
1: (laughs) (laughs) By plane,
0: yeah. Jeez. As the bodies were recovered, they were taken to Greeley, Colorado, and placed in a temporary morgue set up in the National Guard armory. Upon the arrival of the FBI, fingerprint experts... They learned that nine of the bodies had been identified by relatives and friends or by personal effects and had been removed from the armory. So. Okay, so nine. So nine of them were gone home. The remaining 35 bodies were fingerprinted and 21, or 60% of those fingerprinted, were positively identified with fingerprints contained in the vast files of the FBI.
1: Wow. How was the bodies even left? Hmm. Hmm, all of, all of the 21 persons thus identified had been fingerprinted for various reasons during their lifetime. Criminals! Right. And their fingerprints filed with more than 109 million other sets in the civil section of the FBI fingerprint. Wow. Um, a husband and wife from Canada were identified with fingerprints taken when they had applied for U.S. naturalization in September of 54. Okay. Which, I mean, obviously that would be it, right? Makes sense, right? Right. I think the crew members, everybody would know who the crew members are anyways. There's like flight logs and stuff. Right.
0: Well, the crew members were identified with fingerprints forwarded to the FBI by United Airlines. Five passengers were, ident- five passengers were identified with fingerprints taken during their service in the Air Force, Army, and Navy. Uh-huh. Six had been fingerprinted by the reason of employment and defense plants during World War II. Two had been fingerprinted by uh by the u.s government employees so they're u.s government employees Uh,
1: government uh. Mm,
0: something's going on here we got some government we got some uh some uh military military Mm. and some canadians and and, uh, it's never good when you get all three of those together (laughs) and one victim had been fingerprinted in 1941 and had requested that his fingerprints be placed in the fbi files for personal identification oh he thought he was gonna
1: die uh, you never know i mean it was 41 right
0: um, Mm, doing some mafia business there (laughs) or uh 41, mob, yeah, maybe. Yeah. Among the 14 victims printed and not identified by fingerprints, two were men and 12 were women. All of these were subsequently identified by relatives or personal effects. All right. Great. Great for them. That was a pointless paragraph.
1: <laughs> Pretty much. Oh, no. It's saying how they were identified. <laughs> While the bodies of the crash victims were thus being identified on September or November 2nd and 3rd, Agents of the Denver Field Office of the FBI were maintaining close liaison with <laughs> personnel of United Airlines and the Civil Aeronautics Board who were investigating the tragedy. Okay. The Civil Aeronautics Board was advised that the full facilities of the FBI laboratory were available if the investigators desired to use them in the initial stages of the probe. Well, I would obviously hope so. they would be available. No, Please, can't, can't use ours. <laughs> Sorry, folks, not we're, today. We're the FBI. Right.
0: At the request of the Civil Aeronautics Board. A laboratory expert was sent to the scene on the 2nd of November and in conjunction with civil aeronautics uh, investigators, he conducted a visual examination and collected pieces of wreckage between the 2nd of November and the 7th. In this manner, it was learned that the tail section of the plane had been cleanly severed from the rest of the plane as though it was cut off with a knife and had fallen with only minor damage at a point to approximately One and a half miles from the place where the engines and nose section of the plane had also hit the ground in an almost whole condition. So it broke off in pieces. And it was like clean. Well, it was destroyed by a
1: bomb. I don't know how it said
0: cleanly severed. I don't know
1: how the tail just is like completely intact, like it was cut. Yeah, because you can see it right there. Right. It's it's literally in one piece after you even hit the ground. A wreckage from the middle section of the plane was widely scattered over and beyond. Over and behind the intervening area between the tail and forward sections. During the period between November 2nd and November 7th, a minute, a minute and detailed examination of all the parts of the records was also made by engineers of United Airlines, the Douglas Aircraft Corporation, and other private manufacturing concerns. But no possible cause of an explosion due to malfunction or any part of the plane was located by the examiners. So right now, they don't even know that it's a bomb. They're just, what the hell happened to this damn plane? it wow. so just explode in midair. So,
0: so I take it the guy that was that did it wasn't on the plane. <laughs>
1: well, I would hope not if he's going right. to blow it up. 7th
0: of November, 1955. The chief investigations of the Civil Aeronautics Board officially stated that there were indications of sabotage. At the same time, he asked the FBI to institute an appropriate criminal investigation of the crime, which had taken 44 lives. Forty-four. An active investigation was undertaken by the FBI on 8th of November. The necessary agents being assigned to the case on a full-time basis. Oh, well, look at the FBI.
1: Good for you, FBI. Right. Specific assignments were made for these agents to correlate information from eyewitnesses to the crash and employees handling the plane prior to the crash, to trace all cargo, mail, and baggage found on or baggage on the plane, to initiate and conduct background investigations of all passengers and crew members on the plane. Right and to supervise and conduct searches of the wreckage and recovered baggage or personal effects for possible evidence and investigative leads. Ooh. So all things you might uh, want to do to right, solve case. Might, you <laughs> might think would be done.
0: <laughs> right. Between November 2nd and the 5th, four teams and interviewers, each consisting of Civil Aeronautics Board and United Airlines officials or employees, had interviewed approximately 200 individual occupants of a 140-square-mile area surrounding the scene of the crash. Information furnished by 37 of these persons was considered of possible value and was reduced to signed statements. What are they going to do?
1: I've seen it fall. Uh, Yeah, I've seen it fall. Hit the ground. Well, what happened before? Did you hear a boom? Did you see something explode? What happened there? Right. These statements were made available to the FBI upon initiation of the active investigation. Initiation Thanks. of the active investigation. <laughs> and a complete review disclosed that an initial explosion, oh, see, mm-hmm. had occurred while the plane was operating in an apparently routine manner. Yeah, All just right. flying regular, man. Right. The explosion appeared to have been of tremendous force, causing fiery st- streamers to fall from the plane.
0: Dang.
1: A flare, which was normal equipment carried on the plane, had separated from the plane, ignited and descended slowly to Earth. Nice, Wow. A second explosion probable of one or more fuel tanks that yeah. occurred when the engines and forward compartment of the plane struck the ground. You know that happened. Yeah, so uh, I wonder if how many passengers, where it was, well I guess we'll see that if we can get the investigation, how many passengers actually died from the bomb or from the from the crash. crash.
0: Right. You know the... Uh, the pilot's flight died from the crash. An additional witness, a control tower operator at Stapleton Airport, later said that he had observed the flash of light and the flare at exactly 7:03 p.m. Exactly. on the day of the crash. Civil Aeronautics Board's officials placed the location of the explosion at approximately eight miles east of Longmont, Colorado. And at a calculated altitude of 10,800 feet above sea level or 5,782 feet above the terrain. Uh,
1: They were only 11 minutes. A little over a mile. They weren't even up high as they would go.
0: All right, They only up a mile, man.
1: Mm-hmm. In order to properly organize and record the recovery of the wreckage and possible evidence, a surveyor had been hired to plot and mark a baseline through the scene of the crash and in the approximate direction of the line of flight. Perpendicular lines had then been established at intervals of 1,000 feet on the baseline, extending 1,000 feet from the baseline. <laughs> This divided the entire area into a one thousand. There's a lot. They like a thousand. One mm-hmm, thousand right. square foot plats or grids okay. <laughs> or grids. <laughs> a complete and exhaustive search of the area was then conducted, and as each piece of wreckage or material was recovered and removed, it was marked for identification. No shit. And the location in which it was found was measured and recorded in relation to the boundaries of the plat. <sighs> Obviously. Right. Come can, on, guys. Give us something here. <laughs> All material, well, I mean, this is straight from the FBI website, so you know they. Right. Much detail as you can. Right. All material possible
0: connected with the plane was recovered from the platted areas. However. I would, right, I would assume, right? Right. Hunters and other persons continued to report the finding of mail and insulation from the plane. Yeah, floated out, right. right. 13th of November, 1955. An additional area extending up to three miles behind the point where the tail section had fallen was minutely researched. Research was minutely searched by 10 FBI agents and 10 employees of United Airlines. At this very same time, the wreckage, which had been previously collected by United Airlines employees, was reexamined by agents for any possible parts or remains of a
1: bomb. Hmm. So now they're like, yeah, this could be a bomb here. Right. All recovered records from the central portion of the plane, as well as all baggage, cargo and personal effects, was taken to a large warehouse at Stapleton Airport and placed under guard. All mail was turned over to postal inspectors at the time of recovery, but was made available by the inspectors for further examination where desired. Uh, at the warehouse, a full-size mock-up of the central section of the plane was made of wood and wire netting, and all parts of the plane were wired to the mock-up in their proper places, as in the assembly of a giant jigsaw puzzle. So, yeah, the bomb exploded in the center of the plane, so, I don't know, yeah, it probably would have just right. tore it in two. I
0: would say. It
1: depends, how big is a First of all, how big is a B54 or
0: whatever called? DC6B. DC6B. DC6B aeroplane.
1: I mean, it's pretty decent size.
0: Decent size. How many people can fit?
1: Oh, DCB 60 to 89 seat domestic variant with 2400 horsepower and then there's another one 42 to 89. So, so up to 90. Right. Up to 90, lowest, well, depends on which version. I'm assuming it was a smaller one, since so this was only 40. Yeah, look at that. It doesn't look very big at all. Tiny. it's tiny. I mean, it's still pretty big, though. Yeah, it all
0: means. Yeah. Upon completion of the mock-up assembly, the chairman of the Structure Investigating Committee of the Civil Aeronautics Board and a Douglas Aircraft Corporation engineer agreed that an explosion did indeed occur at Station 718 in the rear
1: cargo oh, pit. Oh, rear. In the rear, huh? Oh, right. Obviously. Right. Okay. Right. Well, I know a little bit. I read uh, about this a little bit already, so it makes sense for where they found it.
0: Which was designated as cargo pit number four. Oh. This point of explosion was further pinpointed as being most directly across the cargo compartment from the cargo loading door. Huh. Had mm, would be somebody, uh, an employee or something. These conclusions were based on the fact that the stringers at this point had failed in outward bending, and pieces of heavy fuselage, fuselage skin,
1: fuselage,
0: recovered and fitted in the area had been shattered into small, very small
1: pieces. Huh. Well, pieces of material from this area of the plane embedded in shoes, contained in luggage and in air freight known to have been Carried in cargo pit, number four, further indicated an explosion of tremendous force. Right Near Station 718, gray and black soot-like deposits were noted on several of the skin fragments adjacent to and within the roughly circular area. Uh, The central portion of the floor beam above the cargo pit contained similar deposits on the aft side. However, none were noted on the forward side. Hmm. That's weird. It just went one way. Right. Exploded out that way, maybe?
0: Crazy. Yeah. Copies of the waybills for all air freight shipments on the plane were obtained from the United Airlines. By checking these waybills against pieces of the shipments recovered, the contents or the portion of the contents of all such shipments were identified. Ain't that some shit? That's mm. nice. Nothing of an explosion or a particularly inflammable nature was determined to have been included. That's
1: so a stupid word,
0: number one. right?
1: Inflammable, inflammable, literally the same thing.
0: Right. So nothing like that was uh, included on the the shipment's plane.
1: Right. It's like when you go to the post office, it's like, is there anything uh, liquid, fire hazard, right. all that in there? <laughs> no. Nope, it sure was ain't. also
0: learned that upon arrival at Denver, all cargo and freight carried in pit four had been removed to the forward cargo pit. And at the time of the crash... Cargo pit number four had contained only baggage and cargo-loaded other flights, as Uh, well as all cargo and baggage, which had originated at Denver.
1: So anybody that got on at Denver, that's where all their stuff was, pretty much.
0: And maybe somebody just put it in in a bag and send, send, send it, a, it in there and, right. uh, yeah send, the Dem- send it send uh
1: send it to portland send it on this sh- bus <laughs> plane but during the terrain <laughs> and wreckage search five small fragments of sheet metal were found which could not be in any way identified with parts of the plane or known contents of the cargo really The fragments appeared to be badly burned and scarred and to be coated with a gray soot-like deposit, which might normally be associated with residue from an explosion. Hmm. One side of the one fragments was red in color and bore the letters, bore the blue letters, H-O-O. So now they're on something here, huh?
0: Well, maybe. Although it was not known at this time that these fragments were significant, an extensive effort was made to identify them in the belief that they might have come from a destructive device of some nature. Well, the fragment bearing the letters H-O was eventually identified. Guess what it it was? It was a portion of the metal side of a six-volt battery of the type later determined to have been used as detonating device of the bomb that had brought death to 44 people and their families. Okay,
1: so they found the detonator there, huh? An examination of fragments and pieces of the wreckage recovered from the crash scene Uh, By the FBI laboratory revealed them to possess foreign deposits ranging in color from white to very dark gray. That would uh, Mm. explain the soot, right? Mm -hmm. These deposits were found to consist mainly of sodium carbonate, although nitrate and sulfur compounds were present as Mm. well.
0: Mm. This guy had to load it on somehow or somehow he sent luggage or left them at the airport. I don't know. However you get luggage on the airport in the plane, if you're not there. Couldn't Can you, you do just
1: put it on the bag, the thing? Put what? Couldn't you just put it on the uh, thing that the bags come out on and label it for Denver or Portland or whatever?
0: Yeah, but don't they go through like a screening thing? Not, bags?
1: Not in the 50s. Right.
0: Yeah, that's what I was thinking. All right? Just throw it on the bag thing. Throw it and...
1: right there and then whatever. Right. That's true. You wouldn't have who's who's who the hell watching. It's right. 1955. Right.
0: Barbara, I need more. More. Okay, I'll tell him. More. More. <laughs> FBI laboratory technicians advise that available dynamite consists of nitroglycerin. With varying amounts of sodium nitrate, sulfur, and other materials.
1: <laughs> There's that other. What is it always? <laughs> right. And others. And others.
0: The only solid residue to be expected from the explosion of available dynamite is a mixture of sodium carbonate, sodium nitrate, and sulfur bearing compounds, which that's what they found. Right. The initial summary of this information indicating the probable use of dynamite was first furnished to the, uh, Denver Fuel Office by the FBI laboratory on the 13th of November. So they're getting on this quick.
1: Yeah, man. FBI doing something for once. Uh, as, the, as the investigation progressed, efforts were pursued to develop complete background data on each of the 44 individual victims, as well as any possible motive that anyone might have had for commission of homicide against them. Right. Oh, so now they're even looking at not only them, but people <clears throat> that might wanted to kill them. Right. Similar investigations were initiated on all persons who had originally held reservations for the flight but had canceled them. Oh, I mean, obviously, right. shortly before the flight, or failed to report for the flight at any of the stops made earlier.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Covering all bases there, right? No
0: all officers, right?
1: No stone left unturned. No. <laughs>
0: Look at that. All offices conducting background check investigations of the passengers requested to obtain descriptions of the luggage they carried, as well as probable contents of the luggage, in order that the material recovered could be identified with the individual victims. How are they going to know? The purpose of requesting this information <laughs> was so that by a process of elimination, the owners of the luggage, which was most severely damaged or coated with the foreign residue, could be determined.
1: Right, obviously they're like, this one's like way more obliterated than the rest. This one had to have been where the bomb came from, right? Right. A considerable quantity of personal effects of passenger victim, Daisy E. King, was recovered from the wreckage and closely examined by the agents. The material uh, This material included a number of personal letters, newspaper clippings about her family that survived, a uh, personalized checkbook, $1,000 in traveler's checks, an address list, and two keys and a receipt for safety deposit boxes rented by Mrs. King. Hmm. These articles revealed considerable information about the background of her, and uh, one of the newspaper clippings reflected that her son Jack Gilbert Graham had been charged with forgery by the Denver County District Attorney, and had been placed on the local most wanted list by that office in 1951. Really? Oh, dink somewhere, there? huh? Quinky dink there. Hmm.
0: Well, from the fact of the most of these personal effects of Mrs. King were found on her near, uh, on her near, on her rear. <laughs> Uh, her, these items were found on or near her body. It was apparent that she had been carrying them in her personal handbags at the time of the crash. Uh, you think? Despite careful searching, practically none of the contents of Mrs. King's luggage was recovered, and only small bits of the suitcases believed to belong to her were found.
1: Oh. Immediate effort to determine the identity of passengers on which large amounts of trip insurance had been obtained revealed that six passengers had a maximum of 62,500 of such insurance. Insurance. Four had $50,000, 2 had 37500 one had $35,000, 2 had 12500 and two had $6,250. Wait,
0: you can get trip insurance? I, I don't know if you
1: can now, but back then apparently. Because of a holiday weekend, however, a complete check of all companies writing such insurance was not possible at once, and among policies located later were three on the life of Daisy. Oh! And King. Uh, Oh, three for her. What the hell she need three of them for?
0: Dang, Daisy, with the name like Daisy E. Daisy, King. Daisy, and
1: it's not even a, a Y at the end. No,
0: I- she's high-maintenance. in a thorough search of the home of Jack Gilbert Graham on the 13th of November. It was the
1: same day that they concluded right? that, uh,
0: doing dude, a, holy they're crap. They're doing a lot of stuff. Search of the home, Jack Gilbert Graham, a duplicate travel insurance policy on the life of his mother, Mrs. King, and the amount of $37,500 was found hidden in a small cedar chest in a bedroom of the Graham home. The original of this policy, which designated beneficiary as Jack G. Graham, which would be this guy, was later located and made available by the insuring company, as well as two additional policies, each of them out 6250 on the life of Mrs. King, with designated beneficiaries being her daughter and her one living siesta.
1: Oh, I bet she's the one that took out the 6200. Right. Damn, ain't that something? She didn't even take out one for her son. <laughs> she don't like him. I nope,
0: something's going on there. During
1: the investigation into the background of the passengers boarding the plane at Denver, particular emphasis was placed upon the background of Mrs. King and her relatives, <laughs> obviously. You see that he just raided his house. Right. It was learned that upon the death of his mother, Jack Graham was to receive a substantial inheritance. It also became known that Mrs. King and Jack had frequently quarreled over insignificant differences. During his early life, Jack had lived with relatives on several occasions, and he had actually left home, quote-unquote, when he was approximately 16 years old.
0: Another person interviewed, one who had business associations with Mrs. King and her son, through uh, the operation of a drive-in restaurant in Denver, volunteered for information that Mrs. King continually had trouble with Jack, over operation of the restaurant that, in
1: fact, they fought like cats and dogs. Oh, those cats and dogs always fighting.
0: Right. Uh, that the restaurant building had been damaged by an explosion at one time, too.
1: Oh,
0: oh wow. Jack Graham may have been taking money from the receipts of the business. Graham had once told him that he performed demolition work in the United States Navy, and that Graham had recently purchased a new truck and wrecked it in a possible attempt to collect insurance.
1: This is shady. Only 1955. Expect something like that uh, nowadays. Another individual expressed essentially the same suspicions about the past activities of old Jackie boy. Oh, Jackie Graham. This uh, person further advised that the wrecking of Graham's truck was due to it being stalled on a railroad track where it was hit <laughs> by a train sometimes in 1955. Sometimes. Sometimes
0: <laughs> It happened. sometimes. Sometimes in 1955.
1: Wanders out there on the track. <laughs> Sometime and in 1955. Trucks.
0: just wandering out on tracks and staying. Uh,
1: he also advised that a local supply concern held a a local supply concern held a one thousand dollar note signed by graham and secured by equipment of the drive-in restaurant
0: the extensive records of the denver county probation department uh relative to jack gilbert graham were thoroughly reviewed on the 10th of november No, so they had three days before they yeah, i guess so these records revealed that graham had been employed as a payroll clerk at a manufacturing concern
1: <laughs> what the hell is a concern in denver
0: in march 1951 Gets in, uh, like a, um, a business, <laughs> company. like a hardware store or something. Yes. Or warehouse, yeah, a manufacturing concern. <laughs> At which time he had stolen a number of blank checks and used the company check protector and filling out some, uh, oh, protector. Is it, is it a protector? Protector, yeah. Protector, yeah. Little puncher thing. Sure. Uh, yeah. And used the company check protector in filling out some 42 of them. Uh, for $100 each, that's it? Come on, guy. It's only 4200 bucks.
1: 4200 bucks. A lot in 1955.
0: Right. After which he had forged the name of the company owner and cashed the checks at various businesses in Denver. Oh,
1: look at them. He had received approximately 4200 in cash, obviously, <laughs> and immediately spent approximately 2000 for a late model convertible automobile. In which he left Denver. What, what, what kind of automobile in did which you he buy there, it? bud? Right. Uh, the whereabouts of Graham are unknown until his arrest on September 11th. Oh, no. 1951 at Lubbock, Texas, on a charge of hauling whiskey in violation of Texas laws.
0: Hmm. Can't haul uh, whiskey without a permit?
1: I guess not. He had served a sentence of 60 days in the county jail after conviction and had been released to the Denver County District Attorney's Office to face charges of forgery in oh. connection with his check-passing activities. Oh, geez Oh, jeez. Uh, according to the records, the rest of Graham had been affected only after uh, he had run a roadblock man by local officers and shots had been fired into his car by by them. At the time he was found, he was also had a gun in his car.
0: Oh, Jeez, no. Guys, Today's world, he would have been shot
1: dead. Why is he uh, running a roadblock anyways? Right. right. It's Not like they were.
0: This guy's just a moron.
1: For, oh, I guess he had alcohol in the car. So.
0: Right. And he was wanted maybe. He was probably paranoid about the checks, too. Right. Graham had been convicted of the forgery charge in state district court in November, Colorado. November, Colorado. (laughs) Uh, In the state district court in Denver on the 3rd of November. But the sentence was suspended and he had been placed on probation for a period of five years. The records reflected that cash restitution in the amount of $2,500 had been made at the time of the trial and that under the terms of probation granted, Graham was to make further restitution in an amount of $1,805.34 at the rate of $40 per month.
1: $40 per month? Uh, hmm. Pretty expensive in 1951. Right. Uh, Graham had regularly made these payments between January 2nd, 1952 and November 3rd, 1955. Nice. Reducing the outstanding balance to, oh, damn, it took him f- three years?
0: Yeah, $40 a month.
1: Yes. <laughs> uh, reducing the outstanding balance to $105. And then he's like, yeah, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Uh, these records revealed well, it wasn't November third. The yeah, the day the crash happened. Right. So, these records revealed that Jack Graham had served in the U.S. Coast Guard from April forty eight to January forty nine, and that he received an honorable discharge on the basis of a minority. Hmm. However, How a notion made on the records reflected that he had been AWOL for a period of sixty three days oh, during no. his service. Oh no! Uh, he was last stationed at the Coast Guard installation at Groton, Connecticut, holding the rank of Motorman, oh, third Motorman. class. At Motorman. The time of- <laughs> third class i am <laughs> at the time of his discharge graham had completed the ninth grade in public schools but he was later granted a high school diploma upon his passing of entrance examinations at denver oh, university you know, gd yeah and was admitted as a student there and then went to college too nice.
0: good for him the probation reports reflected that graham did not realize the seriousness of the offense at the time of his arrest on the forgery charges He was like "It can't be that bad Right.
1: Who who would have thought uh, forging money and uh, taking it illegally would be that bad, right?
0: The probation reports reflected also reflected that his mother had been overprotective of her son and that Graham had a rather wild life and had spent most of his money which he made from his crime on drinking parties and women.
1: <laughs> drinking parties, all right.
0: He's like, "I know how to spend this money which I just a crime I committed."
1: Let's have drinking parties and skip women there.
0: Drinking parties, huh? That's what they called parties with beer back then. Yeah, drinking parties. We have a drinking party. What kind of party are you having? Drinking.
1: Drink, kind of, yeah, I mean, I guess. What
0: kind of party are you having?
1: Lunch. <laughs> a lunch party. <laughs> a dinner party, maybe. Yeah.
0: Barbecue. Having a grill party.
1: Grill party. I don't think I'm grills. Get the Weber out. Is it a Weber or a Weber? Weber.
0: <laughs> parties with women. Uh, Graham had regularly reported to the probation department on a monthly basis.
1: However, How however.
0: And had held regular employment as a heavy-duty equipment mechanic the majority of the time between January 53 and December of 54. Good for him. Later, he had moved to Denver, where during the every part of 1955, every <laughs> every, every part, part <laughs> every part. part, including the early part <laughs> right. of 1955, he was employed by his mother as manager of a drive-in restaurant, All which right, we already we knew to that. go
1: Back to the drive-in here. Uh, Jack Graham was initially interviewed on November 10th 1955, in the company of his half sister. During this initial interview, Graham furnished the following background information regarding himself and his family. He stated he was born on January twenty third, nineteen thirty two, in Denver, Colorado. Hey. That his father was William Graham, nice. Billy Graham, isn't that a Revin, who died when he was approximately three years of age, Aww. and that his natural mother was Daisy E. King. Dang, natural mother. Huh? Does he have an unnatural mother? Right.
0: Was his dad married to somebody else? Uh, could have been.
1: He stated that Miss King married John Earl King in nineteen forty one, and from that time until forty eight. They resided on a ranch near Top- Topon- Top- Topanaz, Colorado. Topanas, right? uh, most of the ranch was sold in 1948. His mother and stepfather maintained in <gasps> mm. residence in Yampa, <laughs> Yampa Colorado. <laughs> Damn, right.
0: Yampa Bay. Yampa,
1: <laughs> Yampa Bay. From uh, that time until the death of John Earl King on October 16, 1954. Mm. Following the death of Earl King from a heart disease, Daisy and her daughter went to Goodland, Florida, Ooh. where Mrs. King owned and maintained a house on Marco Island. Okay. Uh, she had some money then, huh? Dang, yeah. There, Missus King remained until February of nineteen fifty-five when she returned to Denver to assist Missus Jack Graham, who had just given birth to her second baby. Shouldn't have came back. Shouldn't have came back, Daisy.
0: Yeah, there's she no just stayed there on Marco right. Island. There's no reason for it, according to.
1: It was already the second baby. Like, she, like right. the mom needs help any damn right. day. Right down out here, all the way from Florida. Right. No, you don't have to come here for all the way from. Trust me. I bought the I tickets, honey. Come in.
0: You're gonna need the help. Is Jackie doing good still. What's he doing?
1: Are you cooking for him?
0: <laughs> you cooking for Jackie? <laughs> Got to keep him happy, Fran. <laughs> is that her name? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fran Graham. <laughs> Fran. <laughs> Fran Graham. <laughs> according to Fran Graham. <laughs> according to Graham, her name is Telly. Telly Graham. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Tilly. <laughs> all right. Here. According to Graham, following Mrs. King's return to Denver, she resided at his home.
1: I would, have thought, I would assume so.
0: Which his home was on 2650 West Mississippi Avenue, mm. except for the periods of time which she spent in Steamboat Springs and Yampa, supervising business interests and occasional trips out of the state. Dang, she was just all over the place. I know, man.
1: Just a traveler. Hey,
0: he said that his mother had purchased the residence of... Uh, the residence at 2650 West Mississippi Avenue for him uh, in December of 1954 Jeez, and had considered this residence her home. This is my home. You right.
1: Know. She came in there like, All I right. bought it. All right? Mm-hmm. Own this shit.
0: Graham stated that in the spring of 1955, his mother had purchased property, built, equipped and opened a drive in restaurant at 581 South Federal Boulevard in Denver, which guess what? Oh, Jackie boy got the oh, manage. Oh, mama,
1: let me manage it. Mm-hmm. Well, he said that the drive-in business at Denver was not a financial success. I mean, it is only 1955. People are still getting used to that kind of stuff. <clears throat> Although he indicated it was successful when he was able to actually operate the business. Right. Doesn't make any sense to <clears throat> me.
0: Maybe when she's gone or something. I
1: guess. Graham volunteered that during May... Graham said that during May 1955, some unknown vandals had caused considerable damage to the window glass at the drive-in and... That, that makes sense. Uh, in September 1955, a
0: little hooligan teenagers little hooligan running around 1955, 1955 right? Around. Little grease heads. Little
1: uh, September 55, an explosion and fire had occurred at the drive-in during the early morning hours.
0: Or he wouldn't. Uh, he wanna do the ten percent to the old uh, to the mob or something. I don't think there was a mob in Denver in 1955. Good then. Mm, maybe according to Graham, there's a lot of uh, paragraphs that start according to Graham. <laughs> <laughs> According to Graham, the examination of the drive-in had revealed that someone had disconnected a gas line connection, oh. allowing the gas to flow into the room and accumulated until it reached to a pilot light on a water heater, igniting the gas and causing the explosion. On,
1: Jackie. We all know it was you.
0: Right. According to Graham, $3 in small <laughs> change was missing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's right about $3 in pennies.
1: Uh, $3. Dollars. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Well, anything else? Well, there's a couple dimes in there, too.
0: Right. Yeah. So... Uh, uh, Three dollars in small change was missing from the cash register, and some of the furniture of the drive-in had maliciously been broken. Total damage had amounted approximately of twelve hundred bucks. That's it. An explosion only cost twelve hundred dollars. Do
1: you forget that this is nineteen fifty-five?
0: Yeah, but still, an explosion. Uh,
1: nineteen fifty-five. Still, you yeah, get, wasn't that? You bright. couldn't buy a house
0: for five grand.
1: Of course, you could. Maybe. Yeah, probably. Back then, cars were only like eight hundred bucks for brand new. Sounds all a pretty fish, fishy. Lines connected, furniture maliciously broken. I mean, come on, dude. Right. You're a shady guy already there, right. like Grammy.
0: Well, Graham also said that he had suffered from misfortune in connection with a new 1955 Chevrolet pickup. I just bought that, some bitch. It said it installed right on a railroad track. I had to jump out for the train, hit it. Sploosh. There goes my brand new
1: 1955 Chevrolet pickup. 1955 Chevrolet pickup. Nice. <laughs> At this interview, Graham gave information about the activities of his mother, Mrs. Daisy E. King, on November first, nineteen fifty-five, as well as her intended plans in connection with her trip to Alaska. Oh, jeez! <laughs> wow. like, I'm going to visit all four corners of the globe. He furnished a. Why do they keep saying that? He gave a description of Mrs. King's luggage, including that which she had been shipped, including that which she had shipped on her airline ticket, and that which she had carried with her on the plane. He claimed virtually no knowledge of the contents of his mother's luggage, saying that his mother would never allow anyone to actually assist her in packing. Right. And... That uh, he had not helped his mother with any of her packing or placed anything in her luggage. Mm. Did they ask you that? They're like, I didn't ask you if you put anything in her luggage.
0: <laughs> right. So just make sure, man. Just let uh, you guys know.
1: He stated that Miss King had considerable quantity of shotgun shells and rifle ammunition with her intended for use in hunting caribou okay. and Alaska. Hey, now she's a big game hunter. Oh, well, I think he's saying that to say like those could have exploded or something. And mm, mm. Come on. I'm trying to cover his tracks a little bit there. I don't know about that. Were you all- You're allowed to travel on a damn plane with ammo? Uh, you
0: might be able to. November eleventh, nineteen fifty-five. Mrs. Gloria A. Graham, wife of Jack. There's Gloria. Gloria advised that she had married Jack Graham, nineteen fifty-three, and resided with him uh, since that very time.
1: <laughs> I would hope so.
0: Yeah, we got married, and he went this way. I yeah, I went both, down the road.
1: Both bought separate houses. And All right. <laughs>
0: Ridiculous. They had two children, approximately 20 and nine months old. Approximately,
1: <laughs> you, know, <laughs> yeah. you don't know how old she's her. like. Yeah, I think someone's around 20 months, <laughs> nine. <laughs> maybe nine months by the now. The other one's 20. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Mrs. Graham advised that Daisy King had resided with them at 2650 West Mississippi yeah. Avenue periodically from uh, December 1954 until her death. Mrs. King traveled a great deal and had spent we already know this.
1: Which we've established right, already.
0: And spent a considerable part of summer of nineteen fifty five supervising her business at Steamboat uh, Springs. Okay,
1: so she's saying the same thing there, huh? Uh, Miss Graham checks out. Right. Miss Graham furnished information concerning the activity as a daisy prior to and including November first, nineteen fifty five. She gave a description of the luggage right. taken by Miss King on her intended trip to Alaska, but she was <laughs> unable to furnish any definite information about the context of the luggage. Just
0: like old Jackie say. Why would she?
1: She explained that Mrs. King was very particular about backing her bags or suitcases and did not allow anyone to actually assist in her packing. I mean, I wouldn't let anybody help me pack. Right, like, why do I need you to help me pack my underwear? Then I have to take
0: everything out and repack it. (laughs) Jeez. Mrs. Graham said that her husband had given Mrs. King a present on the 1st of November, 1955, before Mrs. King left for the airport. Mrs. Graham believed the present consisted of a small set of tools such as drills, files, and cutting tools used for forming seashells into art objects, which... Sounds like this lady does all kinds of stuff. She probably does, uh, frickin' crafting too. According to Mrs. Graham, her husband Jack had talked to her earlier about obtaining such a tool set as a Christmas present for his mommy. He's like, what do you think about this little tool set here for mama?
1: I think she'll love it, Jackie. I think she'll love it, Jackie. And that right there is where we end episode one as it's about to get good. Ooh, uh, about the, the the actual present that he puts in his that guy, puts in his mama's uh, bag, and a lot more details. And uh, uh, these better be the
0: people because we're spending an awful lot of time on these guys.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Son of a bitch. So yeah, we're gonna pause that one right there. We got about another forty five minutes of episode left. Um, we could crunch it into an hour and a half, but uh, break it up. No need for an hour and a half episode, nah, right? Yeah, we'll have the rest of this episode. Um, actually it gets pretty pretty crazy from here on out uh, some stuff happens and uh for once the fbi gets things right in, rights and the rights in this uh, case oh fbi so, uh,
0: oh what's his face ain't leading it still is he
1: in the 50s yes oh. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> but it's hard to botch this one i would uh say after you learn what happened but yeah we'll have the rest of this and uh yeah if you guys are a fan of the civil war and particularly the battles of the Civil War and all that good stuff that happens. Uh, we have a brand new show called Battles of the American Civil War, Coincidentally. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we're five episodes in, about nine or ten battles in, and we're working our way to our first major battle, Bow Bo- Run. Bow Run. Bow Run, First Manassas. First Manassas. Um, go check that out on the Bang Dang Network, wherever you get your podcasts, as well as Lee and Corey on the case, Monday Night Watch along, and whatever else we got going on over there so yeah with that being said we will be back next week for part two of the bombing of united airlines flight 629 where the mouth of michigan is with bang dang